that, that's enough for that. Um, right now, it's uh, we're gonna we're in second week of Advent, which um, the word Advent basically means arrival, and it's the time of year in which we take some special um, efforts to really consider to think about what it meant for God to come into this world, the arrival of Jesus, and why that's so significant. So the next four weeks, beginning last week. This is second week. We'll be taking a look at four different topics and ideas and concepts that play into the bigger um, Advent season. So today we'll be taking a look at the subject of peace, next week love, and then joy. Um, But part of our practice in Advent is to read scripture, but then also light the Advent candle. Again, we say this all the time. This this is not a biblical practice. It's just something that we do as a way of reminding us that the light, the candle reminds us of Jesus is the light of the world. And so right now I'm going to have the Smith family come on down. They're going to read a scripture for us today, and then they will, as a family, light the candle. So let's, let's give these guys a nice round of applause. from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3 and 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain shall, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is the word of the Lord. And uh, what I want to do right now as we jump in, um, as I was thinking about the passage that we read today, and it's such a significant passage, as is much of Isaiah's prophecy uh, throughout the Old Testament, but in particular, the keynote messages that Isaiah was talking about, many of them had to do with the person of Jesus and what his uh, purpose was in coming into this world. It's out of the book of Isaiah that we read passages like those who dwelt in a land of darkness have seen a great light. And um, we, we, we learn a lot about the coming of what God is intending for the world through the prophet Isaiah. But this particular passage that was just read is really significant because it's out of, obviously, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Um, Isaiah 39 ends with kind of a really bad tone. There's a king, his name's Hezekiah. And he has basically fallen under some, some bad times. He's not been doing really good in terms of his relationship with God. And some bad scenarios are happening. Now, he's a king. He's responsible for a lot. And as you know, that if a king or a leader or somebody makes some decisions that kind of uh, lead in a, in a direction, that ultimately is going to bring all sorts of suffering and chaos. And this is exactly what was going on with, with this guy by the name of Hezekiah. So in Isaiah chapter 39, the prophet says, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, he says, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. And he's going to go on and say, the days that are coming when... All that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried away to Babylon. So just pause and reflect upon that. So imagine receiving a message. Hey, by the way, your entire life savings, 
every bit of education that you've earned from Cal Poly that got a lot got you the job that you've always wanted, that got you the promotion that you've always wanted, that got you the paycheck that you've always wanted, that got you the house that you've always longed for, that got you the cars that you've always desired, that got you all these goods and all these securities that you've always longed for. The day will come when everything that you have underneath your feet right now will be gone. You'll lose it all. That was the message to Hezekiah. And then, following the heels of that message is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, where it says, comfort, comfort ye my people. And then it goes into the passage that we just read. So what you see here in this passage is God is basically saying that Hezekiah will experience chaos, but he can expect comfort. Chaos, comfort. Chaos, comfort. Chaos, comfort. You get this idea. This is the theme of much of the Bible. Chaos followed by comfort. This is the experience of many of our lives. Chaos, followed by comfort. This is the word of God to Hezekiah, who's in the midst of chaos. God is throwing into the mix a hope, a word for, for comfort. And ultimately, as we just read, that trajectory goes all the way out to the person of Jesus. That's why we celebrate this time of year. That's why we pause to reflect upon who Jesus is and what he's come to do and really what exactly it is that he stepped into. He stepped into the chaos to bring about the comfort. The word that we can use for that instead of comfort is maybe another more robust Old Testament as well as New Testament word is the word peace, um, shalom. What I want to do right now is as we look at this particular word and begin to reflect upon it, um, I thought it'd be best to just let the Bible Project people do what the Bible Project people do, which is be able to take these massively grand theological constructs and concepts and reduce them into five minutes uh, and, and throw in a free um, cartoon. So, um, so here you go. I'll let these guys give you this incredible definition of the word peace, and then we'll circle back into the passage. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. 
In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Cool. So what I want to do this morning as we begin to think about this and consider the idea of peace is I want to just look at basically three elements of this. Number one, I want to take a look at um, peace with God because that is a huge factor. Secondly, I want to take a look at peace of God, the peace of God that God gives to us. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at peace on earth and how all this kind of plays together in this bigger theme of Christmas time that we celebrate. So I want to, first of all, take a look at the peace with God factor of this. So if you guys have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Romans chapter 5. If not, we'll also have it up on the screen. So go ahead and just check this out. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Paul actually writes, says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a big, massively biblical or uh, theological concept that Paul throws out here. What does it mean to be justified? The, the bigger idea is, is God is making a relationship right that was once far off. So the big question then is what happened? Why was it not right? How did it go south? How did it veer? How did it drift? How did it end up in kind of a ditch? And the reality is this kind of taps us into the largest sword line in the Bible itself. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, we are introduced in the very beginning makeup in the movement of the Bible itself. That God creates all things, and it was always intended to be good by God. And yet mankind, God, part of the relationship that God had with man and human beings were to partner with God, to love God, to walk in loving relationship with God, to say yes to God, to acknowledge that God as a king, as a ruler, as one who loves us, 
also has good intentions for us as we obey him and love him and serve him and walk in relationship with him. But we as all human beings, we know the storyline, not only the Bible, but also too well of history, that we basically feel like we don't want an outside force or factor talking to us. In fact, especially in our modern world, it's viewed as oppressive. That God is oppressive. God is an oppressor who's forcing us into his mold. And that is, by definition, uh, the, 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 the stealing of my freedom. But that is where the Bible storyline is radically distinct, where it says, no, actually, true freedom is found when we give our lives to follow God in the ways that God intends for us to follow. And what's happened is that human beings have walked away from God all we, the Bible says in Romans, have gone astray. We've all sought to emancipate ourselves from the ways of God. One scholar described it this way, that all humanity has been guilty of uh, cosmic vandalism. Vandalism of shalom. In other words, we have taken something that is of great and tremendous beauty that God made, and we basically ruined it. We've drawn little, like, mustaches on this incredible beauty piece of art that God had created. And as a result of that, we brought ourselves out of alignment with the one that loves us and made us for his own purposes. So on the one hand, that there is an estrangement between us and God. Uh, on the one hand, it's us that have pulled away from God. God at the same time, yes, God has a, has a, has a degree of frustration over the fact that we have ruined his good earth, that God is a just God. So there is a degree by which that is justifiable. But at the same time, the major sense of pulling away has been us. We have pulled away from God. And God has come into this world to do something about that bridge, that gap that has happened between us and humanity. And this is exactly what Paul's writing about, that God has stepped into the world, into the mix, into the chaos to do something about that. And to bring us back to himself. And this is what he says, that we are justified by faith. In other words, we're made right, what the word justified means, to have the relationship fixed or made right with God by faith. Which is kind of an odd thing. Like, wouldn't it stand to reason that the way that you make a relationship right is by doing X, Y, and Z? But not in this case. God says, Listen, there's nothing that you can do to make this right. I will do it for you. All I'm asking you to do, inviting you to do, is to trust me for what I've done. This is what it means to trust God, to, to remain loyal, to give our devotion to this God who loves us and made us for his own purposes. And Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So the peace that we have with God is not through any other means. There's no other bridge by which we can somehow uh, uh, create or concoct to somehow create this sense of peace between us and God. This is one of the reasons why um, religion is actually not part of the storyline of the Bible. Like, religion is not what God is up to in this world. In fact, some would argue that religion is actually uh, antithetical to human flourishing. And to some degree, I would, I would agree with that, that religion has a tendency to create tribalism. And with that tribalism, you have this tendency to think, well, my religion is better than your religion, and I'm going to kill you. And, and that, that's really bad for human flourishing, by the way, in case you're, you're wondering. Um, but in reality, that's not what the Bible is all about. It's not about religion. It's about God actually coming to us, not us somehow trying to figure out a way to come to God and then create our own little tribe based upon our own little unique ways of doing stuff. It's God coming to us, God leveling the playing field, God coming to us as human beings and saying, all human beings are flawed and broken and part of the problem, but I'm going to do something about the problem. I'm going to rid humanity of the virus of human error and sinfulness without removing 
humanity. That's, that's what God does. And that's why Paul could say that we are justified or made right with God. Therefore, we have peace with God. And he goes on to say, and I'll just read the bigger context here because it's really fascinating. He goes on to say, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory. So Paul is giving us this, this depiction of standing. We're standing. In other words, you have a place. You have a place. Do you ever feel as if you're out of place? Have you ever been in a construct or at a you know, Christmas party where you're like, I, just, I don't fit in here? I feel that way all the time. I walk into places. I'm a straight-up introvert. So when I go into a wedding or a place where I don't know people, I literally have to have my wife next to me. She's straight up my crutch. I'm like, look, don't leave my side. She's always into talking and meeting new people. I'm like, don't ever leave my side. I need you by me. Otherwise, I will literally panic, all right? The point of the matter is, is that we've all felt that to some degree of like, I don't know where I belong. I don't know where I fit in. And yet what Paul's saying is that because of what Jesus has done, you not only have peace with God, but you have a place. You have a standing. God has given you a standing in his presence by grace. He goes on to say, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. It's like he's just adding benefit upon benefit upon benefit that's compounded to us. And he goes on to say, not only that, we can also rejoice in suffering. Say, sufferings equal chaos. Say it. Sufferings equal chaos, right? So what he's saying is that even in the midst of your own personal chaos, sufferings, pain, hardship, difficulties, He's saying that we, even in the midst of that, can find some degree of rejoicing. Not because of the suffering. Not because of the chaos. But because beyond the chaos, God is somehow using this, constructing it, co-opting it for his own good. This is the storyline of the entire Bible. From the very beginning all the way to the very end. We'll get to that in just a moment. But listen to what he goes on to say. Knowing that... It goes on, he adds to this, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. So this idea that Paul describes as the Holy Spirit is another way of saying God's empowering presence is within you. You could never outrun it, outflank it, remove yourself from it, that God is with us everywhere we go. He loves us. He's devoted to helping us work through. This is the degree which our God that created us and remakes us and makes all things new invites us into walking relationship with him. This is why Paul says we've been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God and all these other things that are compounded, added in addition to all of that. So that's what we see with regard to the idea of peace with God. So number one, Jesus coming into this world brings about this construct whereby we can actually have peace with God. Secondly, we see the peace of God. This is that famous passage in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, where your grandma always had that passage on her coffee cup. But listen to what he goes on to say, where it says, uh, do not be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, goes on to say, uh, and the peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. This is an incredible passage. And it's one of the passages that I think that we can always read and just overlook the actual initial context. And this is why I wanted to add the entire passage up here, just so you can kind of understand uh, what Paul is addressing when he drops this concept of like, look, the peace of Christ is available to you. The peace of God is different than the peace of God. The peace of God, or the peace with God, the peace of God is available to us. So in other words, this inner 
God putting it to right, putting things to right in our lives is available to us. But again, this is what's fascinating to me about the construct uh, in the context of this particular passage. Paul is actually writing to a church community in a city called Philippi, and they're church just like you and I. Like, they're normal people, human beings that have issues with each other from time to time, right? Um, some of you are like, I have no idea what it's like to have issues with people. Right, so listen to what Paul says. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So this little passage is a little bit of a window into just the relational construct of the church there in the city of Philippi, which means that these are just normal people, and they had issues with one another periodically. They had hardships, arguments, disagreements, uh, occasions where people are at odds with each other. And Paul said, look, I'm writing to you because these two ladies are amazing. They're incredibly helpful. They've been helpful to me in the promotion of the gospel in that particular city. And Paul says, but, but right now, what they need more than anything is they need you guys to come alongside them and help to bring about this relationship back to wholeness again. Why? Because Paul's whole point is the whole aim of God in the gospel is the healing of broken, fragmented relationships. In other words, to walk in step with God is to also recognize and ask the bigger question, what are those relationships right now in my life that are out of step, out of sync, totally broken, defunct, falling apart, maybe even dead, that God is saying, I want to breathe new life into it opens up these possibilities to think about this in a bigger way. This is when Paul then go on to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Do not be anxious for anything, but everything in prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. The word that he uses there for surpasses is the word hypoecho, which basically gives this idea of something that, that, that um, occupies something, but Paul's saying it hyperoccupies it. In other words, it's so big, it doesn't fit in the house. It doesn't fit in the, in the confines of whatever it is. It's God's peace is so massive and weighty and large and hefty and robust and substantial that he says it's, it's, it doesn't fit anywhere. And he's saying, I want, I'm praying that this peace that doesn't fit anywhere would fit in your heart and in your minds. And then he goes on to say and that it would actually guard your heart. In your minds. The word that he uses there for guard is no doubt borrowed from the Roman imagery. Paul obviously lived in Roman occupied territory, which meant he was very familiar with Roman guards, right? So I think Paul is probably envisioning a Roman guard standing watch over something deeply valuable. And here's this guy, nobody passes by this Roman guard who's like part Jedi, part, you know, you know, warrior, part, you know, just ninja, that you don't get past the guy. He has his uh, job orders is to keep all enemies out. Paul saying that the peace of Christ is like that. It will guard your heart. But what's our reality? Like, let's be honest, guys. What's our reality most of the time? The reality is that most of us, our minds, our hearts, our lives, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings are actually occupied by crippling anxiety. We're stressed out. We're freaking out. We're worried about our future. We're worried about about our present, we're worried about uh, things that we've done in the past, we're worried about everything you can imagine under the sun, which this is kind of an interesting thing, because again, this gives us a little bit of insight that this whole concept of anxiety and stress and worry is not new on the human race, right? It's been going on for a long time. This, this document is 2,000 years old, in case you're, you're, you're wondering. 
So anxiety, human anxiety, has been something that's been around for a very, very long time. Jesus even talked about it in one of his sermons. He says, you know, don't worry about your life and what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on or what types of clothes you're going to wear. Don't try to look like somebody that you just saw a model on Instagram. Don't try to live or be somebody else. The whole point is that all of these worries are, are mounting and having this cumulative effect upon your soul and it's keeping you in this place of anxiety. And what Paul is saying is that actually the peace of God, the shalom, is a very real possibility for us that are in Christ. But many times we don't live into that possibility, which raises the questions, why? Why do we oftentimes allow other things to take their featured spot, right? When we've been constantly been given this invitation to allow the peace of God, which passes understanding, which is so vast and so big to fill and to occupy our hearts and to ultimately guard our hearts and our minds. So secondly, I just want for us to at least pause and think about the fact that the peace of God is a very real possibility, though it may feel elusive to many of us right now. It's a very real possibility for us. Secondly, listen how he goes on to say in a couple of the passages. Col- Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In this particular context, peace is uh, given this uh, metaphorical image of like a ruler or a king. And he's saying, let peace be like a king that just rules over your heart. Again, I think many of us, if we're really honest, that's not what's ruling our hearts. It's just anxiety. And then John, in chapter 14, Jesus actually says these words. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And Jesus, again, lived. He was a person of his age. He was well aware of the common narrative of the day. Um, Pax Romana would not have been foreign concept for Jesus. He was familiar with the idea that Rome, Rome offered peace, right? Rome's peace was like, you know, hey, you guys want Caesar? Like, no, you don't want Caesar? Cool, we'll kill you. Like, like if you want Caesar, you have Caesar's peace. You've got Caesar's, you know, roadways. You've got Caesar's benefits. You've got Caesar's, whatever it is that you get that Caesar offers, you get Caesar. But Jesus is saying, I offer peace. It's not like what the world gives. It's a different narrative, a different storyline, a different basis, a different, different source. It's a totally different thing altogether. He says, but my peace is offered to you freely without him. And then finally, I want to finish with this final thought, which, number one, we see peace uh, of God or the peace with God. We, secondly, we see the peace of God. Thirdly, I want to take a look at this concept of the peace of God on earth. So Habakkuk chapter 2 is this one of the famous passages in the Old Testament. Uh, it says in verse 14, it says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water cover the earth. So at that point right now, you should be asking the big question, what happened? Why is the earth right now not currently filled with the glory of the Lord? What, what is the earth filled with? Have you thought about that? Like what currently, what, how would you define the earth being filled with? What substance is it filled with? What element is it filled with? And I, and I think all of us, if we're, you know, again, pay any attention whatsoever to what's happening in the world, we realize that our earth is filled with chaos, chaos monsters, chaos experiences, chaos that we create, chaos that has been created upon us in our lives. We experience the chaos, the breakdown, the drift, the brokenness, the pain, the loss, the death. That's what we experience. And again, the bigger question is, is why? How did that happen? Did, did God create it like this? Is God to blame for this? 
should we accuse God? Who should we looking to point the finger at? And ultimately, there's this tendency to kind of move towards that, that God's the cause of this, but God is not the cause of the chaos that we experience. Again, page three of the Bible tells us a little bit of the storyline as to what happened. Human beings were given this, this invitation to rule the earth, just like it says, the earth will be filled. They were given this uh, invitation to rule the earth with God. To walk in a relationship with God. To love God. To do things in a way that God says, here's how to do it. To walk, to, to discern. In order to rule well, what, one of the most important things that you need in order to rule well um, is you need wisdom. So in other words, for example, if, you're gonna, if, if your boss you know, at Taco Bell is just like, I quit. And he's like, I'm giving you the keys to the restaurant. Like, you got to figure out how to use this block gun. you got to figure out how to do everything. Like, in order for you to, to, to manage Taco Bell well, you've you got to have an incredible vast amount of wisdom, which means you don't currently possess it. You've got to find it elsewhere in order for you to keep this thing sustainable so that it actually flourishes and does well. Humanity was given the task to rule the earth, and yet they sought out their own wisdom by way of being deceived through the alternate propagandized state of the enemy, we call the dark one, uh, the serpent, and ultimately they fell in a way of falling out of relationship with God, falling out of relationship with the garden, with the earth, rather than the earth giving its yield. Now man has to work with the sweat of his brow in order to somehow get something out of the earth to produce. That's why work, by the way, is really, really laborious and hard, is that it was not always intended that way. But God has his promise that one day, all the sweat, pain, toil, Anxiety, grief, loss, suffering, death that you as human beings experience will one day be done away with. It will be overcome that this creation, this good creation that has suffered under all of these vices and viruses will one day be redeemed, renewed. And in its place, new creation will come on the scene. This is the hope. This is what Isaiah was talking about when he looks to Jesus as being the one who's going to come to rule and reign in a good way. He will set up a new rule, a new reign. He will become a new human that will create a whole new family of new humans. That's what Paul talks about. That's what Jesus describes. You've got to be born again. The whole big idea behind all of it is God's aim is ultimately to create a new humanity, to rule in a way that is in alignment with the one who loves us and created us and gave himself for us. This is why John, in the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, says this, and I'll read this and wrap it up. It says, then I saw a new heaven. He's speaking of a future event. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The phrase sea, uh, oftentimes throughout the Bible, is a description or a metaphor of where the chaos comes out of. Like, for example, in the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation oftentimes makes these allusions to the book of Daniel. And it's out of the book of Daniel that these like horrible beasts and super beasts that come out of the the sea and this is what the, this is what john's saying he's envisioning and i saw no more sea which means the very source of chaos will be cut off forever i just want you to pause and think about this right now especially those of you that feel the ache and pain of chaos in your own life 
Again, whether it be a diagnosis that you weren't expecting, whether it be a relationship that just went south, someone that, that, that left you and turned their back upon you or that betrayed you, you felt the sting of a relationship that was once robust and beautiful and good. Now it's, it's gone, it's languishing. You had a job that you once enjoyed, now it's totally gone or under the threat of being taken away. You can imagine all of these things that we anchor in and aim for, and yet oftentimes at some point, at the end of the day, all of this, just straight up fragile. And just like that could be gone. And this is the whole hope that says in this world, there's chaos that creates anxiety. And anxiety can cripple us and own us. But the hope of the gospel is it doesn't have to. There's another path. There's another narrative that can co-opt and hijack the one narrative that's been leaving you broken and destroyed and ruined and in despair. And this is the hope that he's offering. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there's no more sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. You realize this phrase in verse 3 is literally taking, like, it's almost like a, a complete direct allusion to Genesis chapter 1. Where were Adam and Eve? They were with God. Doing what? Apparently, apparently, I have no idea what this even looked like, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. You know what this was? This was a temple. Because what happens in temples? Temples are places where heaven and earth overlap. So what it's saying is that the garden at one point was a temple. God's aim for all the earth was that it was to be this cosmic temple. But unfortunately, human beings tasked with the responsibility to represent God didn't do it well. And consistently and continually broke ranks with the creator God and have just unleashed chaos time and time and time again. We experience chaos God promises comfort. This is our great hope. And he finishes with this statement. He says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then he who was seated on the, on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This was God's aim. This is what God's up to in this world. In case you're wondering, like, what is God doing? This is what God is doing. This is what he's inviting you into. So many of us, as you look at your life, and I think the older you get, the more confronted we become by seasons of chaos and brokenness and pain and hurt and loss and so on and so forth. And if you're not careful, guess what happens? You become just a cynical, angry, contentious, horrible human being nobody wants to hang around. If that's you, and if I just described you, sorry, but I'm not. Because the hope is to not have to be that. We don't have to be that. The hope is to see life from a different perspective, to realize that there's a different narrative, a different story that God is birthing upon this planet that is greater than death and all of its friends. This is what the whole hope of the gospel is the good news that God has birthed forth upon the scene. In fact, it's not just even through teaching or construct, concepts or ideas. 
is through a person, Jesus, coming to this world. We light the candle as a way of reminding ourselves that the light has come into the darkness. And he's got a name. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the one who has come to rescue us from our sin and our enslavement and our desires that have just straight up deceived us and lied to us and told us things that just simply are not true or in alignment with the heart of God. And he's come to rescue and redeem and renew. And this is exactly what Christmas is all about. At the end of the day, there is no peace at all apart from the Prince of Peace. And there's no hope of a construct of a kingdom apart from the king. And I'll suggest that every one of us here in this room, to some degree, varying degrees, of course, based upon the type of hardship and struggle and suffering that we've gone through, we have a deep longing and desire for both peace and order, right? Peace and order. But in its place, instead of peace and order, we're all too familiar with anxiety and chaos. And yet peace and order are what this king, Jesus, has come and promised to bring peace, shalom, in place of anxiety, and to bring order in the place of chaos by bringing his kingdom. So I want to conclude, to consider, to ask you to ask yourself, what are those areas in your life right now that you're longing, longing for peace and order? I would suggest to you that that longing is not just simply for peace and order. It's ultimately a longing for a person. Jesus has a name. He wants to know you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to bring healing to those areas that are completely overcome and overtaken by anxiety and chaos. And this is where I want to stop now and then just begin to reflect and consider and worship. As we go to the table, as we respond, I have the worship team come on forward right now. And I'd love to just invite us all to stand. And we will take a moment to just reflect upon this season, upon these words, and then respond. We're going to respond by way of partaking of communion, uh, by singing, as well as by praying. If you are here and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, again, we try to really clearly just set the stage, guys. Look, at the end of the day, as a church family, we are not perfect people. We don't pretend to be perfect people. We don't pretend to have it all together. But we have a God that loves to meet us right where we're at. So I don't know what types of circumstances you're going through in your life. Your life might be great, wonderful, and you just want to touch from God. You just want more strength and energy and power from him to be able to do what he's called you to do. You just need a touch from God because you're suffering under some form of sickness or mental brokenness or hurt or anguish or unforgiveness we want to pray for you so i want to invite you to just take a moment to just come out of your seats to make your way towards the front over by the cross we'll have some leaders up available to pray with you and then as we partake of communion to just respond to god by singing and or praying so let me pray and let's respond jesus thank you for who you are and we just commit our hearts and our lives into your hands and we ask you jesus just to bring your peace reorder our lives according to your ways. We surrender. We, we stop our resistance to you. And we invite you, Lord, to do all that you desire to do. So let's respond.